Well, this evening we're going to look at Daniel 8, and also, Lord willing, at the 70 weeks in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. But let's begin with prayer this evening. Our gracious God and Father, in the Lord Christ, your dear Son and our dear Savior, you have made a full end of transgression. You have completely finished the guilt of sin which is lodged against us. You have covered over all of our iniquities and brought in an everlasting righteousness. All this in his fearful, horrible being cut off out of the land of the living. All this in his enduring a fearful weight of judgment. All this behind him, now risen and seated at your right hand. We are not naive about the judgment that is in front of us, but we are so grateful that that judgment has been taken by the Son of God, who can endure the flames and the horror and the terror of hell itself on our behalf so that we might receive everlasting life in his precious name. Now as we look at the wonderful prophecy of his advent and of his finished work, we ask that your spirit will bless our minds with understanding. And we ask this gratefully in the name of Messiah Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God and Lord of all creation. Amen. Now last time, you will remember that we looked at the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. And then the vision of Daniel in chapter 7. And in those two parallel passages, we noticed a succession of world empires. Now, Loretta, can you remember what the succession of those empires was? That's fine. You're allowed to have cliff notes or crib or whatever you need to find out what's going on. Babylon was first. Medo-Persia. Yep. Greece and derivatives. Greece was third, and and Rome is fourth. All right. So we have the succession by way of the mineral imagery in chapter two. 
and by way of the animal imagery in chapter 7. And we want to keep in mind that succession of those four great world empires uh, as we come to chapter 8 tonight. And we indicated that that seventh chapter of Daniel was exegetical of Daniel chapter 2. Now, does anybody remember what that word exegetical means? A further explanation of. And in chapter 7, we had a further explanation of what had been laid down in chapter 2. And we noticed that it was a rolling expansion or a rolling addition. Namely, in chapter 2, we had a vision in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar that terminated with the first advent of Christ. Then, in chapter 7... We had a exegetical addition or a further expansion of that vision in chapter 2 to include the return of Christ and the appearance of the Antichrist. Yes, there are handouts at the back of the room for tonight. If you didn't get one, please pick one up. Well, this evening, you will notice at the top of the first page of your outline that I'm indicating Daniel 8 as exegetical of Daniel 2, verses 32 and 39, and Daniel 7, verses 5 and 6. We have a further explanation, then, of a portion of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and of the vision of Daniel in chapter 7. Specifically, the portion of the dream in chapter 2 that is described in verses 32 and 39, and the portion of the vision in chapter 7, which is described in in verses 5 and 6 of that 7th chapter. So this evening, we're going to expand upon those particular aspects of the previous uh, dream and vision prophecies. So as we begin... Take a look at chapter 8, verse 3, and we are told that Daniel sees a ram which had two horns. Now, what does the ram symbolize? Does anyone know? Medo-Persia. All right, and what are the two horns then? Back to you. Um, That's a redundant question. Which you can read. Media and the Persians, correct. Say Medo Persia will put a hyphen between them. And usually that's regarded as the Persian Empire. So the ram is the Persian Empire or the Medo-Persian Empire. And the two horns are the Medes and the Persians. Now, how is it that you know your interpretation is correct, Randy? You are right. How do you know that it's correct? Well, earlier they were talking about the bear with one side higher than the other. Okay. All right. You're going back to Chapter 7. That's fine. Anything else? Yes, Maureen? I read ahead to verse 20. Verse 20. All right. Now, here is a wonderful part of how Scripture will often interpret itself. If you'll turn to verse 20, 
of this eighth chapter, you will notice that the explanation for the imagery of the ram is right there in the text. So verse 20 tells us that the ram with the two horns represents the kings of the Medes and the Persians. All right, so we're not left to guessing. And what Randy pointed out about chapter 7 and the imagery of the bear is reinforced. But here it is an exegetical expansion. Instead of a bear on two sides, here we have a ram with two horns. But it is the same uh, imagery, it's the same empire that's being described, actually two empires. Now, <clears throat> the uh, two horns are the kings of the Medes and the Persians. Now, <clears throat> uh, who is the Persian king most familiar to you? Terry, who's the Persian king most familiar to you? Christina? Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. All right, now why is Cyrus the most familiar king of Persia? Christina? Um, because he allowed them to go back. He allowed them to go back to Palestine. That is correct. And what year was that? Um, All right, you need a little help. Margaret? Robert? Randy? All right, he let them go back. What else did he do? Back to you, Christina. Yes, he, he signs a decree that allows the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. What else did he do before he did that? Loretta, what did he do before he told the Jews or allowed the Jews to go back? Daniel chapter 5? What's in Daniel chapter 5? Robert? He uh, destroyed Babylon? Yes, he conquered the Babylonian Empire, Belshazzar's Feast, at the end of the fifth chapter. And that's also in the same year that he issues a decree for the children of Israel to go back. And what year was that? 516. 539. There's another one of those dates like 1776. You ought to know it just got to roll right off the top of your tongue. Is a very crucial date in biblical history. Now, probably the decree to allow them to go back was a little bit later, perhaps 538. So Cyrus is the king of the Persians. He's one of the horns on this ram, and he's known to us in, uh, the, in the Bible or from the history of the Bible because he conquered the Babylonian Empire, and the Persian Empire became the king of the world. And he allowed the Jews, some of the Jews who wanted to go back, to go back under Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar and Jeshua and so on, a history that's recorded in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. All right, so we have Cyrus. Now, uh, the, the other horn here is the Medes. The Medes. Now, who's the king of the Medes? <clears throat> well, this is a fellow named Astyages. Astyages. Now, what's interesting about Astyages, king of the Medes from 585 to 550 BC, is that he was the grandfather of Cyrus the Great. So there is a family connection between these two individuals. 
the daughter of Astyages, married Cambyses I of Persia. And so that alliance between Cambyses of Persia and Cyrus's and uh, Astyages' daughter, her name was Mandana, resulted in the birth of Cyrus the Great. But in 550, the grandson rebelled against the grandpa, and he did it with force of arms. He threw off the power or the yoke of the Medes. The Medes were the more powerful kingdom in that region at that time than the Persians, and the grandson didn't like the fact that his grandfather was uh, kind of king of the hill, and so he took him down. And if you'll take a look at the second map in your packet, he took him down at a city or a location called Pasargadi. And you'll notice that that's down near the Persian Gulf, just above the N in the Persian Gulf, just north of Persepolis. The battle between Astyages and Cyrus took place in 550 B.C., at Pisargadi, and there Cyrus built his capital. So it's not only famous as a location for this battle, but it is the place where Cyrus erected the capital of the Persian Empire while he was emperor, and he did so because he wanted to commemorate the victory that he won over his grandfather and making himself the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. All right, that's the detail behind the imagery of the two horns here in the third verse. Now, verse 4, this ram, who is the Medo-Persian Empire now, this ram is pushing or butting westward, northward, and southward. Now, if you still have that second map out... of your packet, this Medo-Persian ram is pushing against enemies or nations to the north. Now, what nations would they be? They are the nations in the Armenian mountains, not Armenian mountains, Armenian mountains. Armenia is a country, still exists today. Armenia is bounded on the west today by Turkey, on the north by two southern Russian former Soviet Union nations or provinces, Georgia and Azerbaijan, and on the south by Iran. Armenia does not touch Iraq, but it is a separate nation even today. And in the ancient world, this Region, which is labeled Armenian Mountains, was the Urartu, from which the, the name Ararat is derived. And you know from Mount Ararat, where Noah's Ark landed at the end of the flood, that it is probably in the mountains of this region of modern-day Armenia or the ancient Urartu. And in fact, several expeditions have been sent into those mountains in order to recover what uh, some think are the remains 
of Noah's Ark. Uh, That remains to be seen. But nonetheless, Cyrus, having conquered his grandfather, now uh, campaigns in the north against the Urartu, or what are now called the Armenians, and also against another group of people who are north of the Yuxine Sea. Now, what do we call the Yuxine Sea today? Black Sea, okay? That is the Black Sea, and you can see the little boot there just above the N uh, on the Black Sea of the map, and that little boot is the Crimean Peninsula. And, of course, that's the famous site of the Crimean War of 1853 and the Charge of the Light Brigade and the famous poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, Into the Valley of Death Road to 600. Movie by Earl Flynn, too, in case you're not aware of that. It's an interesting film. Anyway, north of what you can see there is southern Russia or the steppes of southern Russia. It goes all the way to the right across your map, north of the Caspian Sea, north of the Aral Sea. And it is the territory of the ancient Scythians. Apostle Paul talks about Scythians in his epistle, and he uses the term as a reference to extremely barbaric tribes or barbarian hordes. Uh, in fact, the Scythians were nomadic barbarians. They rode all across the steppes of southern Russia in the ancient world. They were marvelous bowsmen. They could ride, stride, bareback a pony and horse, and launch an arrow 1,500 feet and hit a man dead between the eyes. They were remarkable march, marksmen, and they had left uh, also remarkable burial tumuli or mounds on the steppes of, of Russia in which uh, their kings were buried with their horses and buried with uh, treasure troves of gold, uh, fabulous uh, uh, artwork, etc. Well, the Scythians were always harassing the uh, nation of Assyria or Babylon or Persia, as the case may be, because they came down from the Caucasus and they spread out into the Mesopotamian plain because they wanted not to be warm, but they wanted all the booty in the plain, which is one of the reasons they had lots of gold buried in their burial mounds, because they stole it from other countries in addition to refining it themselves. All right, well... This northward push of Persia includes the Armenian uh, or Urartu and the Scythians. And Darius I, king of Persia, actually campaigns against the Scythians all the way up in southern Russia in 514 B.C. Now, the second thing you'll notice is that he campaigns southward. The Persian, or this ram, the Persian Empire, campaigned southward. Now, what would be south of the Persian Empire? Well, you say the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean. Uh, True, but uh, what kingdom would be south for the Persians that they would campaign against? It's actually more southwest than it is directly south. 
If you were king of Persia, what would you have your eye on? Robert? Egypt. Egypt, exactly. So the Persians wanted to capture and conquer Egypt. And they did that under Cyrus's son, Cambyses II. Cambyses was uh, king of Persia from 530 to 522 BC. And he invaded Egypt and penetrated, penetrated all the way up the Nile to Ethiopia by 522 BC. So he had a three-year campaign uh, in Egypt and subdued the nation. And on his way home in 522, because he heard that somebody was going to try to knock him off the throne of the Persian Empire, on his way home, he jumped on his horse in Syria and his sword slipped out of its sheath and struck him in the thigh. And three weeks later, he was dead of gangrene. And so the coup didn't have to take place because he was dead before he got home anyway. All right. Well, that's the Egyptian campaign. That's the Persian campaign to Egypt and Ethiopia and is the fulfillment of the prediction there of campaigning to the south. Now, we didn't mention the West. We didn't detail it. What is this implication here that the Persians are going to campaign to the West? What's West? Osama bin Laden. No. Osama bin Laden was very much to the east of Persia. Well, you notice on your map that west is Asia Minor, okay, what is modern-day Turkey. And we already mentioned the last time the campaign of Cyrus against this region in 547. He conquered the kingdom of Lydia. And who was the king of that kingdom? Croesus, Croesus, yes, the great minter of gold, wealth. He was king in Sardis, and Cyrus had conquered the Lydians and Croesus and Sardis in 547. So that's one campaign to the west of the Persians. But suppose you were king of Persia. You had your you had your eye on Egypt. Well, Cambyses subdued Egypt. What else would you have your eye on? You'd have your eyes on the plains of Marathon, wouldn't you? And where are the plains of Marathon, Loretta? You haven't run a marathon race lately? Why do they call the marathon race the marathon? Because of the plains of marathon. What happened on the plains of marathon? Neil, what happened on the plains of marathon? How far is a marathon run? 26 miles. 26 miles, 385 yards. Why do they get that distance? Because someone ran that to tell them, to tell someone that 
the battle had been won. Yes, that's actually the older background to the true story. The true story of the 26 miles plus 300-odd yards is the distance from Windsor Castle to the Olympic Stadium in 1908 when the Olympics were held in England. So it's not actually the distance from the plains of Marathon to Athens where the runner ran and told the story that the Greeks had defeated the Persians in the Battle of Marathon, which is actually about 25 miles. But that's an interesting little Olympic story, as well as a historical story. It's a good way to remember uh, Marathon. Marathon should remind you of this very significant defeat of the army of the Persians in 490 B.C. under their king Darius I. And the Greeks uh, smashed the Persian army on that plain, and a runner named Pheidippides ran from Marathon to Athens to announce the victory, and when he declared that they had won, he allegedly died, dropped dead on the spot from exhaustion. Well, why was Darius the first emperor of Persia invading Greece in the first place? Because obviously if he had his soldiers on the plains of Marathon, he'd crossed over the Hellespont, which is that little strait. You can see the arrow on your map number two, the arrow from Macedonia going over into Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. That's called the Hellespont. Why had Darius sent his army the other way, going from Asia Minor over into Macedonia and then down the coast into Greece? Well, because of the so-called Ionian League, the Greek cities on the west coast of Asia Minor, Turkey, there were colonies, Greek colonies on the west coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. In fact, Ephesus and Sardis and others were at one time Greek colonies. And these Greek colonies, of course, even though they were in the territory of the Persian Empire, were loyal to Greece. And so they were always fomenting trouble. And Darius said, enough of this. We're going to stop this Greek agitation within our territorial bounds, that is, on the western edge of our empire, and we're going to break the Ionian League by invading Greece. So he takes his army across the Hellespont, marches down the coast, and finally confronts the Greek army on the plains at Marathon in 490 and gets his tail beaten, and he is driven back across the Hellespont into Persia once again and does not defeat the Greeks or the Ionian League. Well, the Persians smarted from that, and they waited Ten years to get even when the son of Darius I, namely Xerxes I. And who is Xerxes in the Bible? On the handout it says Ahasuerus. He is Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. Okay, Ahasuerus is actually his Persian name, transliterated into Hebrew. His Greek name is Xerxes. So he is the king when Esther is brought before him. All right, so the story of the uh, book of Esther takes place against the background 
of Xerxes' invasion of Greece in order to pay back the Greeks for what they had done to his father and also to once again deal with the rebellious Greek cities of the Ionian League on the west coast of Asia Minor. Well, this campaign of Xerxes may explain some of the long delays in the book of Esther. He was off campaigning in Greece. There are a number of years in gaps there in the book of Esther in which the king doesn't seem to be on the scene. Well, be that as it may, Xerxes also crosses over the Hellespont and he takes his navy into the Aegean and in 480 B.C., his army is bottled up. Where? Gabriel, this is your kind of stuff. Where is his army bottled up? By no less than 300 Spartans. Ah, interesting. I don't recommend the movie 300. It's far too gory and bloody. So it's not appropriate for Christian viewing. But nonetheless, it is telling a story. It's telling a story of historic importance. At the narrow pass along the coast, the east coast of Greece, the narrow pass of Thermopylae, the Spartans, 300 band of Spartan soldiers bottled up the Persian army until they found a way around the back of the mountain and around the pass. And although those 300 Spartans were all killed, they delayed the Persian advance enough that the Greeks were able to mass a defense and drive the Persians back again. Now, that was combined with another naval victory by the Greek fleet off of the coast of Salamis Bay in the Aegean Ocean. And the huge uh, uh, Persian fleet, uh, much like the uh, Spanish Armada in 1588 with the huge Spanish galleons and Sir Francis Drake's little bitty dart in and dart out and shoot them below the waterline frigates, Uh, the same thing happened at Salamis Bay in 480. The bulky Persian ships could not maneuver in the narrow straits, but the very small Tyrenes of the Greek fleet could, and they smashed the Persian navy while Xerxes was watching from a post on an island uh, overlooking the bay and uh, drove the Persian fleet out of the Aegean and at the same time had defeated the Persian army at Thermopylae uh, so that they retreated. To regroup, that is the army did, the navy never regrouped. Uh, The army of Persia regrouped to fight one more battle a year later in 479 on the plains of Plataea. And they were defeated once again by the Greeks and driven back into Persia. And that was the last time that the ram attempted to push westward all the way to Greece. All right, so this prophecy, which we must remind ourselves, is being delivered by Daniel the prophet uh, at the time of the uh, beginning of the Persian Empire. This is a prophecy of what's happening at least 50 or 60 years uh, beyond the date Uh, on which he receives this uh, revelation. 
and consequently is a confirmation of the inspiration of the text and of the prophet himself. Now, the phrase, he magnified himself, as you look at that second map, if you still have in front of you, this gives you a fairly good idea, although this is not specifically a map of the uh, Persian Empire, it's actually a map of Alexander the Great's empire, but it gives you a, uh, a vision, a geographical vision of the extent of the Persian Empire as well. <clears throat> Magnified himself in controlling not only the Mesopotamian crescent, but he controlled uh, everything east toward the border of India and west toward the uh, Aegean and Mediterranean Sea. He also controlled Egypt. Persia controlled a magnificent amount of territory. So this ram did indeed magnify itself uh, to the north and to the south and to the west. Any questions about uh, that material up to verse 4? All right, verse 5. Now, we see a male goat coming from the west and flying over the surface of the earth without touching the ground, and this goat has a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Who is this male goat? And once again, how do you know? Maureen? Greece. How do you know it's Greece? Verse 21. Very good. <laughs> All right. This is Greece, as verse 21 tells you. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And if you'll take map number one, we want to identify the conspicuous horn. Who is the conspicuous horn between his eyes? Margaret? This is Alexander the Great. That is correct. Now, notice that phrase, at least in New American Standard, without touching the ground, very similar to chapter 7, verse 6, where his wings and the dominion given to him also underscore or express this rapid um, conquest that he makes it's almost like he's flying over the face of the earth without touching the ground. So quick does he conquer the Persian Empire and much of the known world. So we're going to look at the campaigns of Alexander for a moment as we consider the next two verses, verses 6 and 7 of Daniel 8. He rushes against the ram, meaning Persia. And he is enraged and shatters his two horns. So, Alexander breaks the power of... Who are the two horns? The Medes and the Persians, or the Medo-Persian Empire. And the ram has no strength to withstand him. He hurls him to the ground. He tramples him. And there is no one to rescue the ram from the power of the goat. All right, now, maps number one and two give you a uh, more or less complete geographical picture 
of Alexander's campaign. The first map shows you his origin. He was a Macedonian. Uh, He did conquer Greece. His father did actually before him, but he was born in Macedonia. He crosses the Hellespont in 334, and he advances to the first place where you see the crossed swords on that map at the Granicus River. That is his first confrontation with the Persian army under their emperor Darius III. Now, Darius is not present at this battle, but his army is there, and they attempt to stop Alexander's advance at the Granicus. They fail, and Alexander moves on down the coast. You'll notice that he goes south after his victory at the Granicus. Why did he do that? What cities are on that coast? Those are the cities of the Ionian League. They are the Greek cities. And so what is he doing? He's shoring up his rear. Namely, he's got Greek friends in those cities. And he doesn't want anybody invading him from behind and taking those Greek cities away from him while he's off in the center of Asia Minor. And so he conquers them, reinforces his backside, shall we say, and then turns his attention to the center of Asia Minor, center of Turkey, and goes up to Gordium. Now, why does he go to Gordium? In the city of Gordium was an ox cart. And this ox cart had a knot tied around the yoke of that ox cart. It was called the Gordian knot. And it had been sitting there for many years with a story attached to it. Namely, that if anyone could untie the Gordian knot, he would be the ruler of Asia. And Alexander went to Gordium to see the Gordium knot. And he fiddled a little bit with the knot and the, the strands of this rope that were tied around that ox yoke. And then decided that the easiest way to take the Gordian knot was to unsheath his sword and cut it. And so he cut the Gordian knot and thereby declared himself the one who was going to fulfill this legend, this story, that he would be the ruler of Asia. And in fact, he went on to become the ruler of all Asia. And so that proverb or that aphorism to cut the Gordian knot comes from that story of Alexander going to this town in 334-33 and slicing through the Gordian knot to become the heir apparent to the Persian Empire. All right, now his next campaign is just east of Tarsus. You'll notice there, south of the Taurus Mountains, the city of Tarsus. What do you know about that city? Saul of Tarsus. Yes, 
Saul of Tarsus. This is where the Apostle Paul was born and he began his life. Notice, he was not born in Judea. He was not born in Palestine. He's born in the diaspora of the Jews. He is born uh, Saul of Tarsus and goes to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel after that. All right, now you see the next set of cross swords is at Isis, right there at that crease between Asia Minor and Syria. And there, Darius III, who is the emperor of Persia at this time, meets the army of Alexander and is driven from the field. Well, Alexander does not chase Darius. He does not chase the king of Persia towards his capital, towards Persepolis or Ecbatana. He goes south along the coast of Palestine, Syria and Palestine, and you'll take map number two and you'll see how far he does go. And once again, why does he do this? Why doesn't he chase down the Persian army as it's retreating from Isis towards the east? Why doesn't he chase down the king of the Persians, Darius III, and capture him? Why does he go down south? Was he a snowbird? He was looking for warmth in the winter? He wanted to get out of those mountains and lay on the beach at Antioch, Tel Aviv. Why does he go down the coast? For the same reason? Yes, exactly. For the same reason to protect his rear guard. He doesn't want anybody sailing uh, ships loyal to Persia, into the Mediterranean ports along that littoral and invading him from behind or cutting off his supply lines. And so he secures that whole region all the way down the coast, which means Tyre, number one, major city, major port city, the Phoenicians. He goes down to Egypt and he conquers Egypt by establishing a new city, a new port at Alexandria, a city which exists even today, names it for himself, and therefore secures that whole coastal region so that he has nothing to fear from anybody coming at him from behind as he takes up the march eventually to pursue the Persians into the center of the Persian Empire, as you can see from map number two. Now, incidentally, as a part of that march down the coast, he stopped in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem... He was conducted into the temple. He was awed by what he saw. And the story goes that the priests showed him this prophecy in the book of Daniel. And because he was so amazed that this prophet would know that he would come, that he did not harm Jerusalem or any of its inhabitants. He spared the city because of the prophecy. Now, it is true. The story may be somewhat apocryphal, but nonetheless, it is contained in Josephus' history of the Jews. Well, having secured everything behind him, Alexander now heads for the center of the Persian Empire, and Darius III 
<clears throat> enlists a huge army with about a hundred elephants and <clears throat> uh, tremendous uh, infantry and cavalry on the plains of Gagamila. And that's the last little uh, cross swords that you see there on the map north of Babylon. Here, Alexander's famous Macedonian phalanx smashes through even the huge uh, elephant uh, armed uh, soldiers, uh, not elephant armed, but elephant equipped uh, army of Darius and drives Darius off the field. Darius himself eventually uh, dies uh, a year later. Galgamila is dated 331. Granicus is 334. Isis is 333. In the space of three years, Alexander had moved his army all the way from Macedonia into the center of the heart of the Persian Empire and conquered everything as he went. He never lost a battle. Well, Neil asked the question the last time, how many soldiers did Alexander bring with him from Macedonia? Approximately 40,000 crossed the Hellespont in 334 when he went over to confront the Persians for the first time at the Granicus. Over 32,000 infantry and more than 5,000 cavalry. The infantry, the foot soldier, was the heart of Alexander's army because it was uh, amassed in terms of the famous Macedonian phalanx. Now, the phalanx was a group of tightly, uh, uh, tightly knit soldiers standing very close together with very long iron pikes extending out beyond their body and shields protecting them uh, on the front from anything coming at them uh, from the opposition. And this uh, phalanx moved in step. Thousands of soldiers moving in step, short steps at a time, one step at a time with their pikes leveled in front of them, their shields in front of their chests. And as they moved in unison, they pierced through the opposite army, divided them in the center. Alexander always went for the center, divided them in the center and refused the flanks so that his infantry could come up on the side and cut down the flank. And then, of course, his soldiers turned on the inside to squeeze the enemy in between. That Macedonian phalanx was a brilliant uh, piece of strategy. And as you can see, it netted Alexander not only Asia Minor, not only Palestine and Syria, not only Egypt and Persia, it netted Alexander, Pakistan and Afghanistan. For you can see that he marched all the way to southern Russia. when his soldiers rebelled. The year was 323, about 10 years after he had left Macedonia. 
his army had not been home for 10 years. His soldiers wanted to see their wives and children. They had enough campaigning. And they rebelled and said that they wanted to go home. And so Alexander began to march back to Greece. And you can see how he came uh, down through the uh, Hindus River and the Hindu Kush there all the way to the Indian Ocean and then made his way across the southern part of ancient Persia uh, to Persepolis and ultimately to Babylon where he died in 323 at the age of 33, died of a cold that developed into pneumonia. Now, that is the meaning of the phrase in verse 8, and he magnified himself exceedingly, namely that he had conquered the whole known world at that time. And this large horn in verse 8 is broken, the death of Alexander in 323, and in its place come four conspicuous Horns. Now, these are the successors of Alexander. The story is told that on his deathbed in Babylon, Alexander was asked by his generals, to whom do you leave your empire? And he responded, to the strongest. And so... The so-called competition battle royal between his generals emerged. Now, the four conspicuous horns of Daniel 8 are the four leading generals. And if you take the third map, you can see the the, uh, dispersion or the arrangement geographically of the so-called diadochi. Now, that Greek word diadochi means successors. Successors. They are the successors of Alexander. Now, there are actually more than four of them, as your map shows, but one of them, Antigonus, who controls Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey after the death of Alexander, Antigonus is defeated by a coalition of the others in 301, and we'll talk about that when we begin to look at chapter 11. More, We'll look at that in more detail. So he fades from the picture, and Lysimachus, up in the upper left-hand corner, takes the kingdom of Thrace, or modern-day Bulgaria. Cassander takes the kingdom of Greece and Macedon. Then you see Seleucus on the right-hand side with what looks like the region of ancient Persia. And then Ptolemy on the left-hand side, bottom the kingdom of Egypt. And the Ptolemaic Empire, of course, became the empire of Egypt, which uh, gave uh, its last gasp with Cleopatra. And the kingdom of Seleucus, or the Seleucids, would control not only uh, uh, the Mesopotamian area, but also Syria and Palestine. And Palestine would become the uh, uh, the uh, c- kind of uh, 
beaten down nation uh, between the two powers of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And once again, uh, that will be spelled out in detail when we come to look at chapter 11. So Alexander's empire is divided up from 323 B.C. on down. And that brings us to verse 9. Now, out of one of them, it's very important to note what Daniel says. Out of one of them, that is, one of these four horns, comes a small horn. Now, who is the small horn of Daniel 8? And is he the small horn of Daniel 7? Does anyone remember who the small horn of Daniel 7 was? I realize that's two weeks ago, and that's almost like going back to the Dark Ages. No, it is not Antiochus Epiphanes. In fact, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, is the one who is here in chapter 8. He's Antiochus the fourth, and we get to chapter 11, we'll get the other three. Chapter 11 is very detailed. This is Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. who dies in 164 B.C. But who was the little horn or small horn in chapter 7? Verse 8. Loretta, you have your crib notes? Is that the Antichrist? It's the Antichrist. All right, now, let's notice something. Remember, I I told you that that verse 9, out of one of them. All right, so this small horn, this small horn comes from what beast? One of these four. One of these four. One of the four. So ultimately, he is coming out of Greece. Okay, now, in chapter 7, verse 8, where does that small horn come out of? Yes, he comes out of the ten-horned beast, and what beast does that represent? Does that represent Greece? That's Rome. So, is this small horn of chapter 8 the small horn of chapter 7? Can't be. They come out of different beasts. They come out of different images. 
You see, that's the problem with all of those who want to make this small horn in chapter 8 the Antichrist. He doesn't arise from the fourth beast, from Rome, from the beast with the ten horns. This small horn arises from one of the four divisions of Alexander the Great's kingdom. He comes out of the leopard, not the terrible beast with teeth of iron in chapter 7. He comes out of the bronze image in chapter 2. He does not come out of the iron and iron and clay image of chapter 2. Now, why do I emphasize this? Because the dispensational interpretation of this passage is that it refers to the Antichrist, which is a misreading of the text. It's an importation into the text of uh, deriving the Antichrist ultimately from the Greek Empire, not from the Roman Empire, which is not what chapter 7 has taught us. All right, so... This small horn is not the Antichrist of chapter 7. And to confirm that, what does he do? He grows exceedingly great toward the south. All right, now since this is Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, uh, we didn't say what country he is king of. Uh, What nation is he king of? He dies in 164 B.C. Syria. Which means that he is a Seleucid king. He's one of the Seleucids. All right, so what would be south of Syria? Pardon? The pleasant land. No, those are two distinct things. What is the pleasant land, since you mentioned it? I thought it was Palestine. Yes, the beautiful land is Palestine. So that's obviously something that is different from the south, because it's two different, actually three different places here. He campaigns to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land. The beautiful land, we have decided, is the promised land of Palestine. All right? And it is true. Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes did campaign against the promised land, against the Jews. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So if the promised land is not the south, what is the south? Egypt. Egypt is it is Egypt. And this is pointing out the conflict between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So Antiochus the fourth, because he's a Seleucid king, wants to conquer Egypt, wants to conquer the Ptolemies. And so he campaigns in Egypt on a number of occasions. And once again, we'll take a look at that when we get to chapter 11. And we talk about the six, six Syrian wars, the wars of the Seleucids against the Ptolemies, the Ptolemies against the Seleucids. There are six of them between 300 B.C. and 160 B.C. In fact, between 300 B.C. and actually about 190 B.C., six major wars between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. All right, so south means Egypt. What is the east? If he campaigns to the east, where is he marching his soldiers in that direction? 
What's east of Syria? Persia? Persia, correct. Or Parthia, yes. In other words, the Mesopotamian region uh, in uh, uh, east of Syria, and we've already identified the beautiful land as Palestine. Now, on your outline, I've given you that Greek phrase, theos epiphanes. Robert, what's that mean? What's theos? God. God. What's epiphanes? What's an epiphany? I've had an epiphany. Vision or dream? Pardon? Vision or dream? Mm, you're, 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 you're close. A realization? A manifestation. Actually, a revelation. Okay? So, yeah, I've had an epiphany. I had a bright idea or something like that. All right. Right, epiphanes means to be revealed upon, revealed upon the mind, the revelation. All right, now, that phrase that I put in italics there, theos epiphanes, is a phrase that occurs on the coins that Antiochus IV minted. He calls himself on his coins. There's a picture of his face. You can go on the Internet and you see all kinds of them. Okay, you can't read the Greek. If you can read the Greek, you can, you'll see it, but nonetheless, it, it's there in Greek. He has his face on there, and then on the back side of the coin, he has a stamp, Theos Epiphanes, meaning God manifest, or God revealed. So he called himself a god. And the people that didn't like him called him Epimenes. Which means madman. Antiochus Epimenes, not Antiochus Epiphanes. All right, any questions? Okay, we'll take your break. We'll come back and begin again at verse 10. And an imagery which may seem a little bit strange to us, namely this opposition of Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes to the stars or the host of heaven. And you'll notice in your outline I've given you a cross-reference to Daniel 12, verse 3, where the same image, namely the stars, reappears. And here in Daniel 12.3, I don't think there's any question about who the stars are, uh, referring to those who are going to shine brightly and lead many to righteousness, uh, reference to those who are raised up in verse 2 to everlasting life. So the stars in Daniel 12.3 are the saints of God or the saints of the Lord. And so we'll take a clear passage of Scripture and will allow it to illuminate a more difficult or obscure passage of Scripture. So we'll make the clearer, interpret the less clear, and we'll say that the stars there in 8.10 is a reference to Antiochus's opposition or harassment of the saints of the Lord in his day. And here we're referring to his campaigns against the Jews uh, in the period 167 to 164 B.C. 
All right, now to the commander or the prince of the host in verse 11. He magnifies himself even to be equal with that commander or prince. So who is this prince or commander of the host? What did Antiochus call himself? He called himself God manifest. So who's he opposing? Who's he magnifying himself against? God himself. The commander of the host is God himself. The prince of the host is God himself. So here is Antiochus' assault upon God and God's own holy name. Now, as a part of this assault or magnifying himself against God, he removes the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary is thrown down. What's he referring? What's this sanctuary? Terry, what's this sanctuary? Loretta? I'm on verse 11. He removes the regular sacrifice and places the and the place of his sanctuary is thrown down. Where would the place of God's sanctuary be? The temple. Thank you, Neil. It is the temple in Jerusalem. All right. Now, to what is this referring? It is referring to Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes in 167 B.C. Occupying Jerusalem, capturing the city, entering the temple, and erecting an altar or an image of Zeus Olympus. Now, who's Zeus Olympus? Robert? He's a Greek god. He's the Zeus of Mount Olympus. And Antiochus was devoted, devoted to him, worshiping Zeus Olympus. So he erects either an altar to Zeus or places an image of Zeus in the temple, which is a desecration of the temple, and in addition offers sacrifice in the temple. And what do you think he sacrificed? Pig. The tradition is that he offered pigs in the holy temple in order to defile it. All right. Now, that's 167 B.C. And you'll notice in verse 13, someone speaks. How long will this last? How long will this go on? And the answer in verse 14 is 2,300 evenings and mornings. All right, so Daniel foresees, predicts, prophesies, is almost 400 years in advance of Daniel himself, Daniel prophesies that Antiochus IV will defile the temple in 167 B.C. How long will it last? He says 2,300 evenings and mornings. 
Well, how do we take 2300 evenings, 2300 evenings and mornings? There are two possibilities, aren't there? If we say 2300 evenings and mornings, that would mean that we had 2300 evenings and mornings divide 2300 by 2, right? And we get 1150 days. If it's evenings and mornings, 2300 divided by 2, so we get 1150 days, which would be three years and approximately 55 days beyond. That would mean that if from 167 B.C. we have three years plus 55 days, we're going to get down to around September of 164 B.C. All right. I'm sorry. We, I'm sorry. We'd start in September of 167, possibly, and we get down to December... 14th, 164 B.C. On that numbering. Well, suppose it's not 2,300 evenings and morning, but 2,300 distinct evenings and morning. In other words, 2,300 days, not 2,300 evening morning days. So it's 2,300 days. That's six years plus about 100 extra days, which would mean that if the end of this is 164 B.C., the beginning of it is 171 B.C. All right, option number one, the 2,300 days is actually, 2,300 uh, evening mornings is actually 1,150 days, a little over three years. Option number two the 2,300 days is actually six years and about 110 days or a period of six years. Which do you choose? And how do you know? Well, the end of this vision is the end of the desecration of the temple. The end of Antiochus IV desecration of it which included his own death in 164. And how was the temple cleansed? And why this date? What happens around December 14th every year? Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Hanukkah. Yes. And what is Hanukkah? Called the Festival of Lights. But what are they doing? What are they remembering? When they lit the oil in the lamps. They are remembering the cleansing of the temple on December 14th, 164, when they could light the candelabra, they could light the old menorah in the temple once again and celebrate the return of the light of God's candle or God's menorah. 
And who, who was the one that led this cleansing? Judas Maccabeus the hammer. Judas Maccabeus. All right, now, once again, when we come to the 11th chapter, we're going to talk about this in more detail, but it is for this reason, namely, that this campaign to cleanse the temple concludes with what is called Hanukkah today on December 14, 164. It is likely that the first option is the proper interpretation of the 2300 evening and mornings, a three-year period, because... In 171 B.C., the regular sacrifice was still being offered. Notice what the text says, that he ceases the regular sacrifice. That happened when Antiochus occupied Jerusalem and shut down the temple. Consequently, I lean towards this interpretation of the 2300 evenings and mornings because it is more coincident, it's more consistent with the period of time in which Antiochus stopped the regular sacrifices and desecrated the altar by dedicating it to a Greek god. Robert? Okay, now, uh, in verse 9, you talked about the, the small horn being like an antichrist. No, he is not the antichrist. Okay, I thought that's what you said. He is not the antichrist. That is in chapter 7, verse 8. That small horn in that chapter is the antichrist. Not here in chapter, not here in chapter 8. Okay? Antiochus IV may have, uh, kind of overtures of looking like an antichrist, but he is not the definitive historical antichrist that we met in chapter 7. And we'll notice in a moment, uh, or if we have time this evening, we'll notice why that is not consistent, because the Antichrist in chapter 7 appears coincident with the coming of the Son of Man in glory. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Yes, I'm not averse to that, but I want to be careful with that because a kind of typological interpretation of Antiochus uh, leads to some other difficulties. However, anybody that opposes the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of God is an Antichrist. That's 1 John. That's a, gen- that's a generic kind of Antichrist. But uh, the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 is a definitive historical individual. And so he has a characterization all of his own in many ways. Yes, go ahead, Robert. You've got the floor. What he did, what he did in the temple, though, was, was a very serious thing. Uh, yes, correct. yes. The Maccabees, the Maccabees label this an abomination of desolation. But it is not the it is not the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about in Mark 13. Okay, we'll see this when we take a look at uh, the 70 weeks, which we may not get to tonight. So, bring your hand out back next time. Now, this verse, the 2300 evenings and mornings, is crucial to the theology and identity of the Seventh Day Adventist. uh, denomination. How so? In the 1800s, a man named William Miller was a Baptist preacher in New York. Examining this verse, 
predicted the second coming of Christ. He said it would occur between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Now, what Miller did was he identified the end of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9 and tied it in its beginning, made the beginning of the 70 weeks, the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes I. Now, the Bible tells us in Ezra chapter 7, verses 12 and following, the Bible tells us that the the seventh year of Artaxerxes I was the year 457 B.C. Because Artaxerxes took the throne of the Persian Empire in 465. All right. So, William Miller says that the beginning of this decree to rebuild Jerusalem is 457 B.C. In fact, two years before Ezra goes back to Jerusalem, which is 455. I'm sorry, this is the year Ezra goes back. 455 is the year Nehemiah goes back, and Nehemiah goes back once again in 433. All right, now, 457 B.C. plus the 2300 evenings and mornings, which for Miller are years, not days comes out to 1844-43. All right, so that's how this pre-Adventist Adventist, who was a Baptist preacher, this is how he predicts the Advent, the second Advent of 1834. Now, he said, the first hour, this is given for the back Restore Jerusalem. 4-1-9-38. Is it Artaxerxes who gives the decree? Cyrus the Great. It's not Artaxerxes, it's Cyrus the Great. Well, how does he come up with Artaxerxes? Because of Ezra 6, verse 12, where Artaxerxes is included in the list of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes as those who contributed to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, it is true in Ezra 7 that the scriptures say that Artaxerxes did give a decree that Ezra could go back to Jerusalem in 457 and help replenish the temple. That is true. But it is not a decree to rebuild the city, which is what's being discussed here. Okay? All right. Well... This is how Miller gets the date 1844. And so he's waiting on his farm in 1844 for Jesus to appear. Just like Harold Camping, 1980, in uh, 1990, what was it, 1994. And he's already predicting it again. So um, how many times do you have to stone a false prophet? Well, anyway, Miller is disappointed. 
In fact, this whole collapse of his interpretation because Jesus doesn't come in 1844 is called the great disappointment. Well, then, if Jesus didn't come back, how did the Seventh-day Adventists get going then? How did they start? Well, because one of Miller's followers, a guy named Hiram Edson, Hiram Edson was a Methodist, a Methodist layman. And Edson had a vision. He had an epiphany, a real revelation. And in this revelation, Edson said he understood that Christ wasn't going to come to the earth in 1844, but that what he was going to do was he was going to go into the heavenly sanctuary in heaven. In other words, Edson said, no, Miller was wrong. Jesus wasn't going to come back to the earth. Jesus was going to move from the altar in the holy place in heaven to the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in heaven. And there he was going to finish what's called the investigative judgment. All right, so now you've saved this prediction that Jesus is going to do something in 1844. But it's not that he's going to come back to the earth. It's that he's doing something to investigate the judgment against your record as a Christian. In other words, there's something that has to be done about your record as a Christian for Jesus to examine that before you can get a pass to enter into heaven. So that Edson creates the basis for the key doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Namely, that Jesus didn't come to judge the world in 1844, but he went into the heavenly sanctuary to judge all of those who are to be worthy of entrance into his kingdom. Which means that there are two phases to the atonement of Christ. There are two phases to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Phase number one is what he did on Calvary. But phase number one doesn't complete the probation. That's their language. You'll notice in the statement that I've given you in your, in your handout, they complete the probation or the proving of man by the investigative judgment. So the second phase of the atonement of Christ, the second phase of Christ's work is what he does in this heavenly sanctuary. To pass, to give you a passing grade on the basis of the life you've lived. All right. So, When Jesus does return, finally, he will take the righteous dead and raise them up from the dust. And he will take the righteous who are living and raise them up with him. And they will go into heaven for a thousand years. Notice, 
that the Seventh-day Adventist millennium is a millennium in heaven. It is not a millennium on the earth. Well, then what happens to the earth when Jesus has taken all of the righteous dead and raised them up, and he's taken the righteous that are still alive when he comes and takes them with him, and they go into into heaven for a thousand years? What happens to the earth? Are the bad people on the earth? No, because the bad people aren't raised up. Well, then what happens to the earth while this millennium in heaven is going on? Satan and his angels are on the earth for a thousand years. Satan and his angels control the earth. Then at the end of the thousand years, Jesus comes back down with all of those that went into the millennium with him. He comes back down and then he raises up the wicked dead. And the wicked dead, all of the wicked dead, join Satan and his angels on the earth to fight against this city that Jesus brings down out of the sky with all of his righteous saints in it. And Jesus burns them up. Satan, his angels, and all the wicked dead. Because, of course, in Seventh-day Adventist theology, there's no hell. They believe in annihilationism. There is no eternal tournament. Jesus vaporizes them. And then that city that came down out of the heaven becomes a new heaven and new earth, a perfect world in this plane of existence. And goes on then forever with only the righteous, no eternal hell, no eternal torment. So notice on this view that not only does the investigative judgment qualify the finality of the work of Christ on the cross. Okay, In other words, there's still some kind of testing that you have to endure. Okay, But it also questions whether or not the cross makes a sufficient atonement. In fact, there are many Seventh-day Adventists who say, and I'm quoting them here, we dissent from the view that the atonement was made upon the cross as is generally held, quote unquote. Now, not all of them agree with that, but many of them do agree with it. It is one of the historic views of the old Adventist denomination. Now, this whole doctrine has been a focus of tremendous tension and turmoil in the Adventist communion ever since 1980, when an Australian named Desmond Ford began to question the investigative judgment. And he eventually was removed, along with nearly 200 ministers in New Zealand and Australia, from the Adventist denomination. Because this view is held to be almost infallible by the disciples of Ellen G. White, who is the the leading interpreter of the Bible for the Seventh-day Adventist movement. All right, now, you have a direct quote from the Adventist website. And there you see, as I've underlined it, the 1844 date highlighted, the interpretation of the 2300 days highlighted, and the fact that this is the second and last phase of his atoning murder. Notice, the first phase of Christ's atoning work is the cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago. But it's not over. It's not over. There's another phase to his atoning work that needs to be completed. And that is this investigative judgment. And they specify that. 
I've underlined that. And notice I've highlighted in bold the probation element that exists. This is a serious error. Very serious error. And one wishes there are more Desmond Fords rising up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church to challenge it. And to challenge this denomination to rethink the sufficiency of Christ. Now, one more little fly in the ointment here. The Adventist Church, including Ellen G. White, has advocated for over a century that Jesus took a fallen human nature. He had a fallen human nature just like yours and mine. Once again, not all Adventists agree with this, but it is part of their tradition and it is quoted in their literature. What does Hebrews 4.15 say? We have a great high priest who is tested in all things like unto us, yet without sin. They will interpret that to mean that he did not actually commit any sin. But he still has the sin nature. He had the sin nature, but he never acted on the sin nature. No, the passage is saying without sin, without sin in terms of its disposition, in terms of its inherent proclivity, and in terms of its actuality. You cannot place your interpretation as a denomination on that passage. The passage interprets you. Your denomination stands under the judgment of that passage. Submit to it. Well, these are a number of issues which arise out of this verse. This very verse, which is the key to the birth of an American sectarian or cultic denomination. Now, the argument goes back and forth, particularly between advocates of Walter Martin and others of whether the Seventh-day Adventist denomination is a cult or whether it's a legitimate evangelical church. I can't answer the question. Because when you start looking at the primary documents, you start to cringe. This is serious stuff to say that the cross is not the way it's generally understood, that Jesus had a sin nature. That, in fact, there is another phase to you being approved worthy of heaven, not just the cross of Jesus 2,000 years ago. So we say to our Seventh-day Adventist friends, it's not about the Sabbath. I mean, that's bad enough. The New Testament is completely against you on that one, too. In addition to the early church, let alone your dietary rules. Okay, It's not about any of that. It's about the sufficiency of the work of Christ. That's what it's about. That's what Desmond Ford said in 1980. It's a matter about the sufficiency of the work of Christ. And they put him out. All right. Now, we've already looked. Do you have any questions about that? All right. Now, we've looked at verse 20 already. That goes back to verse 3, Medo-Persian Empire. Verse 21, that goes back to verse 5, the Greek Empire. Verse 22, those are the broken horns of the Diadochi, the four successors 
of Alexander. The large horn is Alexander the Great himself. But who do we have in verse 23? An insolent king, mighty in power. What was, pardon? Antiochus. Okay, now we've got two opinions on the floor here. Uh-huh. Well, actually, he's told to keep it a secret, so I guess we don't really know. <laughs> uh, let, let me hear you defend your uh, answer, your first answer, Maureen. Or, or are you backing off your first answer? Oh, I'm not backing off unless that is a, unless that's what you call that, I forget what you call it, where you're going back and you're, reiterating what you've already said and expanding it. But if it isn't, it means there's going to be another, yet another king that's going to rise. And so, and it's and he sounds more horrible, actually, if you read it, than Antiochus. Well stated. Randy, rebuttal or defense of your own explanation? Transgressors have reached their fullness. To me, that would say that it's from one of the four kingdoms. Touche. That is the crucial issue here in the linkage of this this individual with the rest of the text. All right, now let's notice the pattern here. The, The answer to this comes from the structure that we've been examining already. In verses 2 to 9 of chapter 8, we have had a review of the history of Babylon down to Antiochus Epiphanes. Then, in verses 20 through 26, we have a replication, a duplication of the same pattern. That is made explicit in verses 20, 21, and 22. There is no reason then to suggest that 23 is not equivalent to verse 9 and following. In other words, what Daniel is doing is he is exegetically expanding upon this by interpreting it for you. And since we've already concluded that the little horn in verse 9 is not the Antichrist of chapter 7, then this individual who is coming forth out of this kingdom, this last kingdom, namely the Greek kingdom, is the same opponent as the small horn of 8-9, namely Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Which means that this section, chapter 8, is very similar to what happens in the early part of chapter 7, short of the Antichrist. In other words, it's telling us that there is another, there is another tack here. There is another paradigm. There is a paradigm that brings us up to the advent of Christ or just short of it, but not beyond. 
because this chapter brings us up to Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, and does not go beyond. Well, when do we go beyond? Chapter 11, we will go beyond. So keep that in the back of your mind. When we come to chapter 11, we are going to go beyond Antiochus Epiphanes to the Antichrist. All right, so consistent with the way chapter 8 reflects back and forth upon itself of how this portion interprets this portion, then what is parallel to verse 9 is paralleled in verses 23 to 26. It is the same individual. That is the case for believing that we are not dealing with the portrait of the Antichrist here in verses 23 and following. All right, now this is contrary to the dispensational interpretation. All dispensational interpretation agrees. Verses 23, 24, 25, and 26 are talking about the definitive Antichrist. I do not think so. All right, you're ready to go on to the 70 weeks. Now, we're not going to finish the 70 weeks tonight, but uh, let me explain what I have done. I have not attempted, and we're now looking at chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. We're skipping over the great prayer of Daniel. It's a beautiful prayer. It's one of the great chapter 9 prayers in the Old Testament. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. Three great Old Testament prayers in the ninth chapter of each of those books. Beautiful. But the 70 weeks is a hotbed of interpretation and a very controversial passage. What have I done? I have not attacked it on the basis of trying to explain the prophetic imagery per se, What I'm trying to do is work off of the Hebrew text. And I'm working off the Hebrew text in terms of structural paradigms. I'm looking at the Hebrew text and looking for patterns. That's what I'm doing. Okay? Now, the first structural pattern I note is between verse 24 and verse 27. What do we have there? In verse 24, we have what? We have 70 weeks. What do we have in verse 27? One week. week. So, verse 24, we have the... Beginning, the beginning of the 70 weeks in verse 24. What do we have in 27? The end. All right, so our basic structure here, okay, from within the so-called pattern of 77s, it's very interesting in the Hebrew. They're all duplicated patterns here. Okay, we have the beginning of the 70 weeks in verse 24, We have the end of the 70 weeks in verse 27. This is a framed 
unit. It is bracketed by the beginning and ending of the era. All right, now, the beginning is from the destruction of Jerusalem. The beginning of the 70 weeks is from the destruction of Jerusalem. When did that occur? 586 B.C., who did it? Nebuchadnezzar, what country? Babylon. Babylon. All right, so 586 B.C., destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay? What is the end of the 70 weeks? It is another destruction of the city, isn't it? When is the next destruction of Jerusalem? Gary? 70 AD by whom? Rome. Rome is the kingdom, that is correct. And who is the person? Titus. Titus, general of the Roman army. All right, notice. Since we have the beginning and end bracketed in 24 and 27, in verse 24, we have 586 B.C. and the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. At the end of the 70 weeks, we have another destruction of Jerusalem, this time in 70 A.D. by the Titus, the Roman general. All right, so our frame here is 586 B.C. to 70 A.D. All right, now, if the 70 weeks are 70 years, how many is that? Gabriel? What is 70 times 7? 490 years. All right, now, if I take 586 B.C. and subtract 490 from it, what do I get? I get 96 B.C. Doesn't sound like 70 A.D., does it? If I take 70 A.D. and add 490 years to it, what do I get? I get 420 B.C. It doesn't end up being 586. In other words, 70 years cannot be, the 70 weeks cannot be 490 years. It's impossible. It does not fit the structure of the passage. So you can go ahead and try to figure out every which way, up, down, around, about, get 490 years to fit. Actually, William Miller did, because when he started with that date, of 456, and he added 490 years because he thought that the 70 weeks was 490 years, and you add 490 years, what do you come up with? 33 A.D. Boy, that's neat, isn't it? which may be one of the reasons he was working the way he was. 
He was working from the traditional death of Jesus, 33 A.D., and working backwards to make the 490 fit. And that's how he ended up with a 456 date for the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which happened to fit with Artaxerxes the first seventh year. But it doesn't fit with Cyrus the Great's decree. You had your hand up, Rob? I just was talking about it. It's the same guy I was just talking about. In, in, the, in, the, in the Adventist, yeah. You see, he came up with the 1844 date, but he was using he was using 456 to begin. So how did he use 456 to begin? He used 456 to begin because he uses 70 weeks as 490 years, working backwards off of the crucifixion of Christ in 33 A.D. So you could play these numbers games very interestingly, okay? So obviously this pattern, this period between the beginning of the 70 weeks in 586 and the end in 70 AD is not a literal 490-year period. It is a period of God's prophetic revelation. Rob? Are we going to have time to kind of uh, go through some of the different interpretations of that, uh, or the different approaches to that, or... uh, I'll respond to any questions you may have if you want to raise them. But what I want to try to do is base base what I think the passage is saying on what's in the text itself, and not and not import something like William Miller does here and try to make it fit. Because of course I can remember my days as a naive biblical numerist. Trying to make 490 years fit somehow so we could get to the Messiah being cut off. What's it mean that he's cut off? Well, it's got to mean that he's put to death, like he was cut off out of the land of the living. Isaiah 53, that's what it means. He's put to death, right? So if he's cut off, 33 AD and 490, how does it fit? And yet, you see, I ran up against this same problem. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. William Miller didn't have any problem with it, but it wasn't that I was smarter. I just happened to remember that 456 wasn't the time when Cyrus gave the decree. All right. All right, so far now, we've got the parameters. We've got the the bracketed beginning and ending of this 70-week paradigm. It's bracketed at its start. It's bracketed at its conclusion. Its start is 586, destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Its end is 70 AD, destruction of Jerusalem by Titus of Rome. All right, now, the next structural paradigm. We begin with the destruction of Jerusalem once again in verse 24. And we notice that the language is to uh, restore and rebuild Jerusalem, verse 25. Now, the word for return in the Hebrew text, this won't mean a whole lot to you except perhaps to Rav, is shuv, and the word for rebuild in Hebrew is bana. Now, the language is then repeated in verse 25 on the other side of Jerusalem and Messiah. However, in your English Bibles, 
that Hebrew language is not translated the same way the second time. In your versions, you may have the phrase, it will be built again with plaza and moat. The word again is that Hebrew root shuv, which I mentioned for return up above. And the word rebuilt or built is also the Hebrew verb bana. Now, notice what we have. The Hebrew text is precisely duplicated. And yet your English version does not precisely translate the duplication accurately. In other words, by by translating built again at the end of verse 25, they're making that Hebrew verb an adverb. Whereas the text says, shuv bana, the same thing it said before the word Jerusalem and Messiah in the front part of the verse. And there they do translate, return and rebuild. So why don't they do it when it occurs the second time at the end of verse 25, return and rebuild? They say build again. No, sorry, I disagree. Because of the parallel structure, the duplicate structure, the very same exact Hebrew roots in both places. All right, now what is the significance of this? The significance of this is we have a very fine structural paradigm which sandwiches or frames Jerusalem and the Messiah and the 69 weeks. Notice, in between return and rebuild in verse 25 is Jerusalem, Messiah, and 7 and 62 or 69 weeks. Then, coming after that is return, build, and then the uh, time of distress, which is the time of the destruction again at the end of the 69 weeks. So, the pattern of the, the, the Hebrew original is precisely exact. Destruction of Jerusalem, return and rebuild. Return and rebuild, destruction of Jerusalem. It is a perfect chiasm. You see it? Perfect A, B, B prime, A prime chiasm. Now, the importance of this is that we have a reverse paradigm in each of my suggested A, B, C structural patterns. God is saying in this prophecy of the 70 weeks that he's going to reverse the destruction of Jerusalem by restoring and rebuilding the city. But then... He's going to squeeze in the Messiah and 69 weeks, and then he is going to reverse the reversal. He's going to reverse the return and rebuild by return, rebuild, and then destroy again. You see the symmetry. 
The symmetry is to reverse destruction with rebuilding and then to reverse the reversal by reversing the rebuilding with destruction. The chiasm begins and ends in the very same place, the destruction of Jerusalem, which is the whole outline of 24 and 27. It begins in destruction at the the beginning of the 70 weeks and ends in destruction at the end of the 70 weeks. All right, now, I will leave it at that for this evening, but please bring this back next week and we'll continue to finish this discussion of the 70 weeks. But I want, I want you to understand that I am supporting my interpretation of the 70 weeks on the basis of the structure of the Hebrew text. Not on the basis of a preconceived prophetic interpretation or numeric calculation. I am trying to read what is in the text and come to the conclusions that the text contains in itself. Rob? Letter C with A, B, and then the two blanks in the middle, framing 25. Yes. What should be filled in those? Yes. And in the in the B, uh, the, the first line should be returned, and the second line should be rebuilt, which is in 25 uh, B or C, A, A or A, B or C, however you number the phrases in the, or letter the phrases in the verse. Then, after Jerusalem Messiah in 69 weeks, you have return and rebuild again, which is B prime, and then the destruction of Jerusalem A prime again. So filling in the blanks on your outline, return and rebuild before Jerusalem Messiah, after Jerusalem Messiah, return and rebuild again. The very same Hebrew roots in each case. They are duplicated. Okay, Rob? And then and then you see the chiasm. You see the underneath that, you see the A, B listed, you know, uh, on a line, and then the B prime, A prime on a line, so that if you draw a cross between, if you draw a line between A and A prime and B and B prime, it crisscrosses with Jerusalem, Messiah, and the 69 weeks. You see the chiasm? You see it there? Okay. So it's it's not just the duplication of the Hebrew roots. It's also a chiastic pattern. It's a chiastic duplication, which is a reverse paradigm. All right. I, I'm, I'm not infallible, so I may not be right about this, but I think that I'm seeing something here in the text that perhaps others have missed. For what it's worth, bonsoir. Yes, Neil? Uh, In your uh, Seventh-day Adventist view, am I confused when in that underlying phase in 1844 at the end of the prophetic period of 2300 days? Wasn't that years? Yes, it's 2,300 days that they take as the morning-evening equivalent, but then they turn it into years. They interpret the 2,300 days, the 2,300 morning evenings as 2,300 years. 
In other words, they're actually using the language of the text, but they, what they mean by the language of the text is years, not days. Any other questions or comments? Again, please bring this handout back uh, with you. We'll begin here uh, in the first hour next week, but then we will go on to chapter 11. We will begin to break ground on Daniel chapter 11, which is the most challenging of all of the chapters in the book of Daniel. And I hope your heads aren't spinning too much. Are the outlines helpful to you? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Then you then you have it. You can fill in the outlines, and that's good. I'll keep. I'll continue to provide the outlines.